Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello and welcome to this episode, which I'm rather looking forward to, of Joanna and the Maestro, because it's about rule breakers. Now, I've always thought of music as one of the arts that has the most insistent rule book. We always believed you sort of had to be able to do it, whereas in acting you couldn't do it, go all over the place, painting you could do go all over the place. Music had to have a set of rules, but there were some big rule breakers, and I'd like to tell me who you think the first giant rule breaker was, who tore up the book and just left the tatters well, on the floor. What book, you see? <laughs> That's the point. Yeah. What rules? I mean, you 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 really have to go back to the very beginning. We don't know anything about um, the realities of Greek music, for example, ancient Greek music or ancient Egyptian music or ancient Far Eastern music. We don't know anything about all that that happened 2,000 years ago because, of course, no one recorded anything by writing things down until a fellow called Aristoxenus who was a pupil of Aristotle, came along, and he took on the task. This is, what, the 350 BC. And he took on the task of writing this treatise. And I believe that's as much as, as we know about Greek music. But the very beginning of what we call music was the story about Pythagoras walking past a blacksmith who was hammering. And as he walked past, he realized that he wasn't hearing one note. He was hearing several. The harmonics, do you mean? The harmonics. Now, in those days, this was science. It wasn't an art as such. It was science that, that looked at what constituted sound. And he then discovered that there were consonant sounds above the note you were hearing. It's really quite deep and complicated, but suffice to say that our modernized ideas of how the Greeks codified music is through modes and the division of the octave which is the most consonant note in the sequence, is the octave above. That is the first harmonic in the sequence. And so the division of the octave, the Greeks divided, or at least so our fellow who did the treatise lays out. So this scale... So divided into a specific number of notes that they laid down, they invented this system called modes. And so the first one, those notes, is called the Ionian mode. Then 
the next note up is called the Dorian mode with a minor third, a smaller interval between the third note. Then, so that's goes. Now, the Dorian mode was used by Bach. He wrote pieces in the Dorian mode, and the Dorian mode, that's what that sounds like. Then the Phrygian mode, which was in, on E. It's got its own colour. And then the Lydian... These are all Greek words, aren't they? Absolutely. And then the Mixolydian, based on the fifth note. And they all have different intervals between certain notes. Um, then the Aeolian. And the Locrian. Now, God help us with the Locrian. It, um, <laughs> it gets quite mind-boggling. But those were the basic rationalization of the notes in between the most consonant notes in the harmonic sequence. Now, as time moved on, people wanted to write two lines together. Now, when we get to the 16th century, we're really in a, in a rather interesting time. If you think of composers like Talis and William Byrd in England, and Palestrina, and Lassus, and Vittoria. And then after Gesualdo, we have Monteverdi. So Gesualdo, he's the man that stands out for me, or at least that I've picked out, because he's a very interesting man. Most sensationally, he's known as someone who murdered his wife and her lover when he found them in flagrante. But he wasn't prosecuted because he was the Count Carlo Gesualdo di Venosa. And in those days, finding your wife with her lover... Creme de passion, I should think. Absolutely. So he didn't suffer from that. And he went on then to marry the daughter of another nobleman. But that's principally why he's known in a passing way. But he was the most extraordinary man. He was self-taught and he had a passion for music and he wrote... Books and books of madrigals. Now, the madrigal was a secular piece. The songs, a madrigal is a song, isn't it? It's, yes, and usually for five parts. Yeah. So there you are, there's the first rule. Well, it wasn't a rule you could have written for many more, but five was customary. And sometimes these were simply sung around a table. People would get together to sing them. Now, if I just give you the text of one of these madrigals, many of them are on the same subject. The translation of Morro Lasso, is I die, alas, in my suffering, and she who could give me life, alas, kills me and will not help me. O oh, sorrowful fate, she who could give me life, alas, gives me death. His version of how to interpret words was very chromatic. Now, I, I, I can give you an example. The opening of that specific madrigal I quoted, Morro. 
Now, those are the words of, I die, I die in my suffering, alas. I mean, you, now, now, of course, in the 21st century, we can listen to that. And I think I played you one and you said, gosh, that's very beautiful. And I was listening to it thinking, my God, what's he doing? Yes. It's weird beyond belief. But of course, the more you get to know Jesualdo, the more you look at the words and what he was, what he was trying to convey. It's interpretive, isn't it? Despair and jealousy Absolutely. and anxiety and things. Absolutely. Did, why wasn't his music influential on people like Bach who came later? No, the additions would have existed. Mm. He was regarded as someone who was pushing at the barriers. If you have a query for me or the maestro, we'd love to hear from you. So do get in touch with us on hello at joannaandthemaestro.com. And that's it. Now, back to the programme. If we considered, for the purposes of this small programme, that Gesualdo was, let's say, the first rule breaker, would you say that Beethoven well, was a yes, rule breaker? Yes, of course. You, um, I mean, I know that he is your god, um, and he's one of mine too. So just compare... Mozart's symphonies with Beethoven's symphonies. In Mozart's symphonies, by and large, you have the form that Haydn basically categorized, codified, which would be a first movement, fast, in a certain form, sonata form. The second movement would be a slow movement, a languid or a graceful, melodic movement. The third movement would be a minuet and trio from dance. And the last movement would be a, an allegro presto or whatever, um, sometimes in rondo form, but in a recognizable form. Now, I found this really interesting. Looking through Beethoven's symphonies, the first symphony follows exactly that form, exactly the same form. as, And, and it's quite often said that Beethoven's early works sound Haydn-esque or Mozartian, because, of course, he was the younger of the three. Then you look at the second symphony. This is the first time that Beethoven, instead of a minuet and trio, he basically writes a scherzo, which is a completely different tempo and is a completely different mood. So less graceful as a generalization, but more energetic. And the scherzo would usually be very fast. Then you look at the Eroica, the third symphony, and there is an alarming development in the Eroica first movement. You remember that lovely opening melody. Ah, it's got a lovely feel of one, two, three, very, very grand and rather graceful. But later on, he starts getting rather worked up. If you remember, this passage is um, one, two, and one, two. And he continues all of that. And you know you're going somewhere uh, you'd, you'd really rather not go because it, it, he then gets stuck on them. Um, 
And then you arrive at this moment in Beethoven's output that I still, whenever I hear it, I'm fantastically exhilarated. And do you know what it is? You'll recognize the chord. And what happens next? Well, 11 chords. But that tune and the way he got there with 11, you know, blockbuster chords, you really feel as if someone is hammering at a door. And then there's this diminuendo, and then that tune. That comes out of it, sir. Sweet. And you only hear that tune there. It has nothing to do with the rest of the movement. Because if you remember, you really are... Beautifully bright, and then this wistful tune out of nowhere. Now, I think this is Beethoven's genius, because when you get to that moment, you feel as if you've, you've gone into a different world. He's changed your feeling of safety, where you think you should be in a first movement of a symphony. Now, of course, once he's done that, he finds his way out again and crashes back into the real world. But do you remember the moment when the main tune comes back? Extraordinary what he does. There's tremolando strings. Then the horn, the second horn. Very, very quietly plays the theme, but on the... It, 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 it sounds like a mistake. I mean, if you didn't know any better, you'd think, shut up, shut up, it's too early. Why did he do that? It's a stroke of genius. <laughs> because then, of course, the orchestra, as if saying, I'm sorry, we kept you waiting, crowns in with a huge um, recapitulation of the melody. But it doesn't finish there. And it goes on. Everybody knows the Fifth Symphony. We all now think this is part of received greatness. But honestly, to start a symphony that way, was unheard of. Yes. The audience must have, who were sitting there ready for their new symphony, but rather worried because Mr. Beethoven gave the impression that he could upset people at any time. They must have been shocked out of their minds. And then on it goes, the pastoral symphony. This is programmatic. 
It's programmatic, which is, of course, something that grew in the 19th century with Strauss. Tone poems telling a story. Yes. You can see the brooks, the, the gathering the hills, storm and the, and the and, settling and down the, the sunshine storm. after the storm, the, se- the peasants the, celebrating. It's programmatic. The seventh symphony, the second movement is one of your very favorite, you know, the. Yes, uh, spooky. Now, that's actually. To me, it's like a funeral procession. The depths of despair in it. This is emotion now becoming part of one of the most established classical music forms, which would celebrate the cultured society of the Enlightenment. But but that's a desperately sad movement. It's really a funeral march. This is a man with emotion desperately wanting to pour out his feelings into these great symphonic forms. Do I need to say any more about the Ninth Symphony? About the Ninth, I mean, that... Which no longer represents what the classical symphony was supposed to be. No, and the third movement of of that is one of my favourite bits of music because it's just sublime, it's just... It's sublime. It doesn't seem to follow any form of anything that's ever been before. It's very, very long for a movement. Yes. And when you know that it's going to step into the choral... Last yes. movement. That's... See, he breaks the rules with that melody because it doesn't have an easy form of duple time, i.e. two bars, two bars, another two bars, another two bars, then four bars. It seems to be seamless. This was innovation. I'd love to go on to the very last of our rule breakers. I mean, they were all in a way rule breakers. We have to give things names because we're being brief about these things. But everybody took on and then moved on and took on. Was Picasso a rule breaker? Don't know, really. I mean, he became known for his particular style. Did which he invent he settled a style? On. No, he didn't because he, 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 they were all inventing it, but he, they all started off classically, as he did, classically trained, and then moved into their particular things. But Stravinsky seemed to land, he came from a different planet. Well, no, no. Not or did at he all. start his, traditionally? His, he, he, um, Rimsky-Korsakov was the king at that time, a composer who wrote a huge treatise on orchestration mm. when colour, pure colour, was, was becoming more and more interesting and more desirable, pure colour for colour's sake. Brahms really doesn't break any rules, orchestrally speaking. Tchaikovsky has his own style, but it's very, very formalised. So Rimsky-Korsakov was, was, and in his music, you can see his use of colour and 
orchestration for effect. And he influenced Stravinsky a lot. So up until, well, you can look at the two ballets he wrote, The Firebird and Petrushka, which are both 1911 or 1910-1911. Don't forget what was going on in France with Claude Debussy and the new colors that were coming out. And Stravinsky would have known all about that. And The Firebird has moments of unnatural beauty. There are wonderful movements from it, and you hear them often because they are so beautiful and so romantic. Stravinsky wanted to investigate a little bit more than set forms. And then all of a sudden, the rite of spring broke through the surface. And the story of the riot is an extraordinary one of his premiere. T.S. Eliot was there. All sorts of society people were there because it was a Diaghilev production, commission. And the Ballet Russe, I think that was the name, wasn't it, was well known for its modern dance, its modern take on what ballet should be. Wasn't it Jinsky dancing? No, yes, yes, he was. Nijinsky danced in the premiere. And one doesn't really know whether the riot was against the choreography <laughs> or was against the music. I think Bach's did the costumes, which were very extraordinary and revealing and yes. uh, nouveau. And it's a ritual. The story is an old, old legend of a ritual where a virgin is chosen and she dances herself to death at the end of the ritual. It has no real human emotion in it. It is all about depicting brutal instincts and brutal ritual behaviors. And from the very first moment, when the piece started, I'll just play you the opening bars. Well, to a certain extent, that's in the same range as La Premidi, played by the flute. But this, in the Rite of Spring, is played by a bassoon, right at the top of his range. So the sound is unearthly. It's almost as if he's trying to evoke an instrument from eons ago. And within a few bars, you realize that the harmonies are barely recognizable. And there are moments in it that had never been thought of in, in music.
wanted to let rhythm break out, pure rhythm, so that rhythm basically dominated the structure and was cumulative. So you could do, yeah, let, let me give you an example. One of the dances begins with the most extraordinary chord. Now that's a, yeah, actually two chords, nice E major chord and but when played together on eight horns and all the strings, it goes like this. Um, and then goes on. Those same two chords but broken up. The whole point about this is that he was making rhythm and orchestration the main players. And that rhythm itself, it's not regular. You get off beats and then a couple that are on the beat and then some that are off the beat. This sounds quite, I mean, thrilling because I, I know it and now I know it. But to hear that for the first time, what, was the, what did the audience think no, about well, this? Well, you know, apparently... <laughs> Apparently, very soon after the ballet had started, a voice was heard from one of the boxes saying in French, call a doctor. <laughs> and then someone from the other side of the stalls apparently said, call a dentist. <laughs> um, you, so if you look at the pictures of the costumes and see the dancers and then listen to what people like T.S. Eliot wrote about the dancing, it was all earthbound. It was all about rhythm. And classical ballet is all about being in the air and the gracefulness of, of leaps. But it's a staggering piece, and it certainly didn't die, and it certainly didn't do Stravinsky's what did, what did reputation other musicians, any harm. What did I mean? The audiences, uh, audiences, no, well, the world the musicians the, adored the, it. No, the players, the orchestral look, players. My experience, actually, of modern music with today's musicians is that they regard it as part of their job, and as long as the music is written within what they can do they're prepared to give everything a go. Now, Stravinsky was a real expert, so there are things in there for the players to do that are really hard, and there are um, horn glissandos, you know, which, which would have um, made a horn player either whoop with joy or think, oh, God, what is this? I'd, I'd learnt my horn to play the Brahms horn trio. But in the main, I think they would have been rather excited and severely tested. Um, there's no question about that. Um, Master, we've got to end this programme. Shame. I hate it. I know, shame indeed. But to go out, I want you to choose a piece of music from one of the three rule breakers we've talked about today, Gesualdo, Beethoven and Stravinsky. Mm. I'll give you a clue. It's not to be from Gesualdo. Okay, oh, okay. no. So, no. <laughs> I would love you to choose a piece of because they Stravinsky. Are I know they are fabulous. Beautiful. But we want our listeners to come back. So what we would love is either a piece of Beethoven, the rule breaker, or Stravinsky, the rule breaker. 
Well, I think in this case, we should go for your man. And we've used the slow movement of the Ninth Symphony, which I know we have before, but I suggest something really very uplifting. How about the scherzo of Symphony Number no. Four? It's got that rumbustious. This was something nobody had done before. been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge, and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson, and our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. Moro Lasso, written by Carlo Gesualdo, performed by Early Music New York, directed by Frederick Renz. The record label was Ex Cathedra Records. Symphony No. 1, Third Movement, Scherzo, written by Ludwig van Beethoven performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Joseph Cripps. The publisher was Cavendish Music Library and Sonaton Music Verlag under music production Gerha. The record label was 1960 Everest Records. Symphony No. 3, Eroica, First Movement, written by Ludwig van Beethoven, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Joseph Cripps. The publisher was Cavendish Music Library and Sonaton Music Verlag under music production Gerha. The record label was 1960 Everest Records. Symphony No. 5, First Movement. Written by Ludwig van Beethoven. Performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Joseph Cripps. The publisher was Cavendish Music Library and Sonaton Music Verlag under music production Gerha. The record label was 1960 Everest Records. Symphony No. 7, Second Movement. Written by Ludwig van Beethoven. Performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Joseph Cripps. The publisher was Cavendish Music Library and Sonaton Music Verlag under music production Gerha. The record label was 1960 Everest Records. Symphony No. 9, Chorale, Third Movement. Written by Ludwig van Beethoven. Performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Joseph Cripps. The publisher was Cavendish Music Library and Sonaton Music Verlag under music production Gerha. The record label was 1960 Everest Records. The Firebird, Tableau Number no. 2. Kashkai's spell is broken, his palace disappears, and the petrified knight returns. Written by Igor Stravinsky. Performed by the City of Birmingham. Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sir Simon Rattle. The publishers were Chester Music 
and Shop Music Limited, and the record label was Parlophone Records Limited. The Rite of Spring, The Adoration of the Earth, written by Igor Stravinsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. The publisher was Hawks and Son. The record label was Sony Music Entertainment. The Rite of Spring, The Ordures of Spring, written by Igor Stravinsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Leonard Bernstein. The publisher was Hawks and Son. The record label was Sony Music Entertainment. Symphony No. 4 in B-flat major, third movement, written by Ludwig van Beethoven, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Joseph Cripps. The publisher was Cavendish Music Library and Sonaton Music Verlag under music production Gerha. The record label was 1960 Everest Records.